2: Live, from Liverpool, The Dark Paranormal, Season 13. Hello everyone and welcome back to The Dark Paranormal Season 13, Episode 6. We're already heading down the final furlong of this season with only three more episodes to go after this one before our finale. I've said it before, but this season seems to have really flown already, and we've had some fantastic listener experiences thus far. But the experience we're going to share today is one of those that throws up more questions than answers, and to me is my favourite type of experience. Because you could argue... That although there are clearly paranormal elements within this experience, it's actually low-key in regard to the activity. Well, low-key for this show, high-key for most shows. But, that said, this is more of an experience which questions belief and morality. And I cannot wait to share it with you. But before I do, I need to make two quick announcements. First and foremost, we're now accepting submissions for Season 14 of The Dark Paranormal, so please send them to contact at thedarkparanormal.com or visit our website thedarkparanormal.com and click the Contact Us link. By now, you should be aware that we focus on one experience per episode, and I've found between five and six pages of A4 tend to cover that mark. And secondly, a huge thank you for all the feedback we've received regarding the Minisodes. From the feedback, it looks like we will continue those into Season 14. Because, once again, this is your show. Even closing in on our three-year anniversary, we will still make amendments to the show based on your feedback. As I've said many times before, I'm merely the conduit between the experiencer and the listener. I may well be steering the ship, but you guys are well and truly the navigators. So a huge thank you from the bottom of my heart for all the feedback we've received over the last 13 seasons. And long may it continue. Now before I go into this week's experience, I need to say a big thank you to everyone who signed up over at Patreon. When you sign up to our Patreon team, not only do you receive these episodes, both ad-free and before everyone else but you can also receive exclusive access to our Patreon-only podcast, Dark Bites. Dark Bites is a full-length podcast for our Patreons only that airs every week of the year, even on the downtime between seasons. Meaning, during the three-week break that we take in between seasons, our Patreons never miss their dark paranormal fix. We've built a wonderful community of like-minded paranormal enthusiasts over at Patreon, and we'd like to extend an exclusive invitation just for you. Simply head over to patreon.com forward slash the dark paranormal. Just like these wonderful new team members have Edmund Newmyer, Nathan Sear, Catherine Henri, Lorna Monroe, Matthew Biggenden, Evelyn Davis, Juliana Bellardo Cholia, Sean Smith, Dolores, Jennifer Graff, Kate Wingler, Will Mack, Jim Rundle, Chris Hammond, Jeff, Kenzie Murphy, Bunny, Ashley Sullinger, Hannah Elliott, Eva Palmer, Courtney Fado, PG21, Lady Dimitrescu's Favourite Maiden, Rhea Dawson, Shea Christina Schaefer, Lacey Ferris, Raphael Boudhu, Stephanie Harris, and Holly Bentley. Thank you so much, guys. Your support. Truly means the world. And if you'd like early ad free access to premieres, finales, and all episodes, a weekly Patreon only podcast, and of course access to the entire back catalogue of Dark Bites, which is around 60 hours, simply head over to patreon.com forward slash the dark paranormal. But right now, it's time. Lower those lights, make yourself comfortable, and most importantly, leave your disbelief. At the door, as we hear all about a problem shared. I never thought I'd be writing into a show like yours. No offence. You'll soon understand why. My name isn't Margaret. That was my mother's name. But as I wish to remain anonymous, let's go with Margaret. Margaret is 62, and she's a retired psychotherapist. Yes, I'm already picking up on my use of third-person language to separate myself from the experience I'm about to tell you. Old habits die hard, I guess. I was always fascinated by the mind. The very thought of how we tick excited me since I could remember. I was rational to the point of not only being a staunch atheist, but being borderline aggressive with it. My idea of hell was sitting and listening to other people's supposed spiritual experiences and, God forbid, dreams, especially in my uni days. But even as irritated as these people made me, they equally fascinated me. For me, there was always a why, and 99% of the time, I could nail it down to some traumatising event or similar. A very natural and human reaction to look for answers in a chaotic world. As a youth, people's ability to reach for God instead of just accepting that shit happens. People die, diseases kill, people get ran over, relationships end, people cheat on each other, murderers exist. In my mind, a god had nothing to do with it. And if you believed he did, or it did, well, why would you go running to it for help if he or it was omnipresent when said trauma happened? Where was he when your parents died? When your child was hit by a car? When your husband's eyes wandered towards the secretary? It seemed absolute madness to me that somebody could believe in an all-omnipresent being that had power over everything, and then when tragedy struck them, they would run to see comfort in the arms of this omnipresent being who apparently could have had the power to stop the event which caused the trauma. If we were talking about two people here instead of a god and a person, that's the sign of an emotionally abusive relationship. And that's still my stance today, kind of, because I did encounter something, and even as rational as I am, I'm still not settled with it, hence this email. I learned, or should I say I had to learn, how to keep my opinions to myself as I graduated, and I began sitting in with trained psychotherapists as part of my ongoing training, What first hit me like a brick was how many terrifying people are actually out there. I mean terrifying. The things I would hear in my first few years genuinely kept me awake at night. And I mean everyday people. Not raving looking lunatics. I mean the mother of three. I mean the person you pass in the supermarket. Sitting down with the most awful admissions leaving their mouths. My mentor is slowly nodding, as this mother of two is saying how she's afraid one night she's going to lock their bedroom door and set the house alight. These mentors to me at the time were like gods. They would use the power of words to not only calm these apparently potential maniacs, but also to explain to them why they felt like that, and how the actual problem lay elsewhere. An atheist I may well have been, but this was as close to magic as I'd ever witnessed. And it was the occupation I wanted to master more than anything. Ironically, to say you believe you're a master of anything is rather narcissistic, And several times we were set tasks to self-analyse our own patterns, our own behaviours, before we were ever allowed near the general public. It's rather like how I've heard on your show, people discuss Catholic priests needing to attend a confession before attempting to battle some demonic force. That practice, the practice of constant self-reflection, And ensuring you're always advising patients from a neutral, unbiased place is essential in psychology. Specifically, in one-on-one therapy. So much so, although not legally binding, the done thing is for each therapist to, in turn, have their own therapist. Just to keep them grounded and on the right footing. All good and qualified therapists are trained to a certain level. However, many will branch off into specific areas. My speciality, although, as I say, we're all trained to a standard, was that of domestic abuse. Victims, survivors, even abusers. We like to think of ourselves as unique individuals. But, in truth, we're nothing of the sort there are certain ingrained behaviours or patterns that each and every individual will follow to the letter should the causal conditions be identical. And this is something I sadly witnessed a lot during my time counselling victims of domestic abuse. And these patterns are often unhelpful, often hindering you moving on. However, you form the pattern. Maybe it's my fault. Maybe if I cook XYZ. I suppose I was dancing a bit close to that man. Regardless of how incorrect or irrational it is, it's to simply keep you safe. If, for example, your partner beats you because you danced with a member of the opposite sex, and next time you purposefully decline any offers to dance and remain unbeaten, a subconscious link is formed. Solely to keep you safe. Is it rational? No. Is it a clear sign of controlling an abusive behaviour? Absolutely. But are you alive? Yes. And once your subconscious works out that equation, the rights and wrongs jump out of the window. Your subconscious has given you a provable survival method. So, when someone takes that bold, brave first step to reach out for therapy, they often see a triage therapist, and they'll have a detailed chat about what they wish to achieve. In turn, that triage doctor will recommend a therapist who they believe matches up with the requirements of the individual. And it was through this exact process, right in the middle of lockdown 2020, that via Zoom, I had my first session with Sophia, again not her real name. She'd been nudged in my direction despite not mentioning domestic abuse of any sort during her triage. I queried this and was told, just speak to her, see if you pick up on anything, said the triage doctor, implying he'd picked up on something himself. And so I sent her the meeting invite, and when the time arrived, 3pm, I awaited her to arrive in the virtual waiting room. I recall glancing at the clock. 3.04. She'd paid a deposit, so I was a touch more lenient than I would have been. 3.08. Okay, this is pushing it. The session was only an hour, and even... Sophia is in the waiting room. I checked everything once more, speakers, microphone, etc., and I accepted her into the room. My initial impression? A drug addict. A serious one. And I'm genuinely not one to make assumptions. But the girl on the screen was skin and bone. Black, wiry hair scraped back in a ponytail. Although the living room laid out behind the settee seemed immaculate. A beautiful vase of fresh roses just over her right shoulder on a shelf. Sophia, I said with a smile. She nodded quickly and then bit at her fingernails. I'm Margaret and I want you to know we can talk about anything you wish, okay? Sophia glanced left and right before quickly nodding. "'Are you alone, Sophia? It's important that you're comfortable.' Sophia stared at me motionless for ten seconds, before slowly nodding, wide-eyed. "'My first impression? This girl is not alone, and she seems to need help from whoever is with her. "'So I wrote on a sheet of paper, "'Is someone there? Do you need help?' And I held it up to the webcam, while saying out loud, Basically, this is just an introduction to each other, blah, 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 whilst pointing at the piece of paper. Sophia nodded urgently. Um, okay, I think my modem's playing up, I said out loud. Give me a moment. I left the room and I phoned the police, explaining the situation. They promised to send someone round to Sophia's ASAP. Entering back to the screen, Sophia was still sat there. So, what would you like to talk about? I asked. Sophia shrugged. Anything, really? She almost whispered. Well, I picked up the triage report. You got in touch with us to say you were, and I quote, going mad on occasions. I placed the printed triage report back down. Sophia was now rocking back and forth, slowly, and staring towards the bottom right. Did you come to that conclusion, or has someone asked you to? Sophia's doorbell made us both jump. I'm sorry, someone's at the door, Sophia said, moving the laptop to a coffee table, which gave me a perfect view of the kitchen, and someone hiding just behind the door frame. Two pairs of trousered legs came into view and I could hear the voice of a policeman. Knowing the speakers were still on, excuse me, I shouted repeatedly until a police officer's head lowered down into view of the webcam. Dr. Margaret, he asked. Are you the one who called us? I nodded. Sophia tells us she's alone in the house. I scribbled on my A4 pad. Someone in kitchen. He stood and I waited as he walked off towards the kitchen. He asked his partner to search the perimeter... and asked Sophia to open the kitchen door. It doesn't open, I heard her say. She mentioned something about the key being painted over numerous times. The officers completed a thorough search and left. My phone rang just as Sophia sat back down... ''Sorry about this,'' I said. ''It was the officer who'd just been at the house.'' He said, although there was no one physically there, there was what he called Celtic symbols, drawn with charcoal on the walls of the hallway and the landing area. I nodded and ended the call. ''Sorry about that,'' I said. ''Where were we?'' ''Sophia looked angry. ''Why did you phone the police?'' Now, if I make a decision like that, I don't do it lightly. Because i showed shown you a piece of paper asking if you needed help, and you nodded quickly. I've got a duty of care to you, she interrupted. I do need help. There is someone here. Given the police presence only moments before, I became sceptical. Are they hiding? Sophia shook her head. As she did so, something jarred with me in the image, and then I realised that the roses now were on a shelf behind her left shoulder. Have you changed anything with the camera? I asked. A confused shaking of Sophia's head followed. Steadying myself, but sincerely feeling a touch uneasy, I said, where is this person you need help from then? There was a pause. Sophia looked to her left, then to her right, then straight at the floor, and muttered, ''It's not a person.'' ''Okay,'' I said, ''in my best, we'll get to the bottom of this voice.'' ''Well, if it's not a person, what exactly?'' The vase behind her had fallen and shattered. Interestingly, although I jumped and clutched my chest... Sophia didn't even bother to turn around. She didn't seem startled. She just rest her head in her left hand and began crying. With her right, she closed the laptop shut. I was frozen. Not out of fear or anything similar. Just out of pure, what the hell? It was a text from Sophia apologising for the abrupt ending and checking we were still okay for the same time next week. I replied, of course, keeping it short and sweet. Thankfully, my session with my therapist was later that day and it couldn't have come at a better time. Let's have a quick break to talk to you about policy genius. Now, we all like to put off life insurance talk because it reminds us of our mortality. But life insurance isn't about death, it's about life. It's about ensuring the lives of those you love remain secure and comfortable. And I'm sure many of you will think, well, I'm covered through work or I'm covered through my bank account. But believe me, you want to check those finer details because you may be surprised what you're actually covered for. And this is exactly where policy genius come into their own. Yes, we could talk about how policy genius is America's leading online insurance marketplace or how their award-winning agents will walk you step by step through the entire process. But the best thing about policy genius for me is they don't have a dog in the fight. They're not going to strong arm you towards one company or another. They've no incentive to do so. Their only incentive is to listen to your needs, scour America's top companies, and find you the best price. For example, with Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that begin at just $292 per year for $1 million of coverage. Some options even offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. There's a reason why Policy Genius has thousands of five-star reviews on Google and Trustpilot, and you'll find out what it is when you tick life insurance off your to-do list with Policy Genius. So head over to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you can save. That's policygenius.com. I described to my therapist, Phil, again, not his real name, more or less verbatim the session I'd just had with Sophia. So you saw someone in the house yourself? he asked. I saw, and I thought before replying, I saw what I assumed to be a person hiding in the kitchen, yes. Phil shrugged and repositioned himself. "'Well, I think you handled it excellently, just as you should have. "'The girl said she was basically in danger. "'You believed you saw someone hiding.' "'He raised his hands with another shrug. "'The only thing I would say is... "'I take it you note each session?' "'I nodded. "'Good. "'Well, considering the police were called, "'I'd personally write as detailed an account as possible, "'whilst still fresh in your mind.' Again, I nodded, but a question had been niggling me since Sophia's session, so I brought it up. My one concern is that I should have maybe called the police again at the end of the session, you know, just to check, given her state, given the vase exploding or being thrown. The vase was thrown, asked Phil. Good point, I'd assumed that. Um, I'm not sure. I didn't see anyone throw it. So it could have simply fallen, said Phil. I nodded in response. I guess so. Then don't ruminate on it. Sophia sent you a text afterwards, correct? Again, I nodded. And in addition, you said the police done a full sweep of the house. Yes, uh, apparently so, I replied. Another shrug from Phil. Then pay it no mind. What I would say is, on your next session, try and delve into any previous mental concerns or issues. You know the role, hereditary stuff, things like that. Again, I nodded. That topic is generally covered in the first few sessions anyway, so his suggestion, he knew, was standard practice. Despite seeing all of my other patients that week and dealing with everyday pandemic life, I couldn't shake the feeling of the session with Sophia. That weekend, I'd arranged a drink with my friend Sheila. We technically weren't in a bubble or anything, but we would test before meeting up regardless of the legalities. Now, therapists are human too. And although names and places, etc. are never mentioned, basically anything which could identify someone, occasionally, especially amongst friends, we may allude to a situation that we're helping someone with. We keep it vague. But therapy, at its core, is a treatment of the human condition. And sometimes it's really helpful for an opinion which isn't surrounded with the trappings of a formal training. As I walked out of my kitchen with two large wines, Sheila could tell I was not completely there and asked me what was wrong. I told her, in as vague a way as possible, about my experience with Sophia and how I felt it was hovering over me. This particular friend, Sheila was arguably the wrong one to broach this topic with. She has since passed, but she was always into the spooky side of things, and told me that, in her opinion, this sounded like some sort of evil presence. One that was hounding poor Sophia, and she suggested I pass this client on. I recall specifically doing that "'nodding along whilst regretting starting the conversation, "'nod that we all do. "'She ended by saying I should definitely cease all communication, "'and even physically shivered, "'telling me someone had just walked over her grave. "'I remember thinking, "'Oh God, Sheila, your heart's in the right place, "'but what wallop!" "'I couldn't have been more wrong.' "'Sophia has entered the meeting room,' it flashed on the screen.' I hovered the cursor over the Admit button, took a deep breath, and clicked. "'Sophia appeared on the screen, and talk about a transformation. Her hair, her entire appearance was, well, glamorous. She looked the total opposite of the individual I'd spoken with the week before.' despite it definitely being the same person. The woman in front of me on the screen was truly beautiful and seemed full of confidence, smiling from ear to ear with genuine sincerity. Uh, ''How are you doing, Sophia? How's this week been for you?'' ''You seem much better,'' I stated. My initial thought jumped to perhaps a bipolar condition. But with it being only our second session... I didn't want to jump down any rabbit holes just yet. Oh, I've had a great week so far, she began. I saw someone and they've sorted everything out for me. There's just a few things I need to do first, but then I'm all good, she smiled. I smiled back. Something felt off. OK, well, that's good to hear. And what did you discuss with this person? I forced a smile. Sheila's reaction, as much as I didn't want to admit it, had planted a seed. A seed of nonsense in the cold light of day, but right now, a seed that was beginning to grow. Oh, she was wonderful. I told her everything that was happening with me, and she told me a series of steps to follow. And honestly, I've not felt this good in years. I nodded along. ''Well, that sounds amazing. And what were these steps?'' I asked. Sophia smiled and bit her lip, slightly rocking back and forth. Well, ''Well, there's a number of them, really. I've only got a few more to do.'' She still maintained the smile. But I wasn't entirely satisfied with the answer. ''Sophia?'' We agreed at the start that we need to have total honesty, didn't we? Or else there's no point in doing this. You'll get nothing out of these sessions. Sophia's smile dropped. Her face was one of a told-off child as she slowly nodded. So, can you tell me what has taken place this week? What are these steps that appear to have brought about this 180-degree turnaround? Sophia bit her lip again, staring directly at me. Now that sounds obvious given the webcam setup, but people generally stare at the screen, not directly into the small camera, which was exactly what she was doing. And good God, it was so uncomfortable. Sophia, I said, breaking the silence. Just one moment, said Sophia. For this session, she was wearing earphones and she removed those earbuds and walked off camera to the left. I was left staring at the settee and the shelving behind and a playing card. That wasn't there last week. Seemingly blue-tacked or cellotaped to one of the shelves. Stuck in its middle on the front of the shelf. An arm came into view from the left picking up an earbud. Margaret? Yes, I replied. Sophia, is that you? Yes, she replied. Why are you stood off camera? I asked. Sophia ignored my question. I just need to check something. Can I ask, can you see that playing card on the shelf? Yes, I can, I replied. Can you tell what card it is? I squinted and leant into my screen. It looks like the Three of Clubs. Yes, yes, yes it is, replied Sophia excitedly. Then I heard what sounded like a cigarette lighter. Sophia, can you tell me... Smoke blew across the screen from the left, totally greying out the camera. And then... Sophia has left the meeting. Our second session, and the second time I was frozen staring at the screen, wondering what the hell had taken place. It was Sophia. I'm so sorry, but I had no choice. Thank you, Margaret. God bless you. I called her back, but it didn't connect. I sent her a message asking what was going on, which was never replied to. Again, as they fell on the same day... I had my meeting with Phil later that day. And she hasn't been in touch since. No, nothing, I replied. Another shrug from Phil. Then drop her. Mentally and physically, send her a message saying you no longer can be her therapist. You need to protect yourself too, you know. Or you'll be no help to anyone. Someone was at my door. Sorry, Phil, one sec. He just gave a thumbs up. ''I'll get a quick drink of water,'' he said. ''Okay, okay.'' I was almost at the front door. This person was clearly impatient. I opened the door and no one was there. The time between the last ring and me opening the door was mere seconds. I stood there. And just as I went to close the door... A gust of ice-cold wind blew through the doorway and through me. I felt it. As strange as it sounds, I felt it in my organs as it passed through me. I had pins and needles in my hands. My first thought was a heart attack. I looked at myself in the hallway mirror, taking my pulse. I seemed fine. The pins and needles left, and I opened and closed my hands a few times, then closed the front door. As I turned around, I didn't want to admit it to myself, but now I didn't feel alone. I lived alone, and I was very attuned to when anyone was in my house along with me, and that's how I felt right then. I headed back to my laptop. Phil was yet to return to the settee. I was clearly unsettled. I placed just one earbud in my ear. I was that convinced I was not alone. I wanted to be able to hear should they make themselves known. I looked at the screen and froze. Stuck on Phil's usually blank wall was a playing card. I leant in. It was a picture card. It was the Joker. I leant back and bit at my nails. Phil came back and sat himself down, his head now blocking the card, and picked up his headset. Right, where were we? he said. Phil, Phil, why do you have that card on your wall? Phil looked confused. What card? Behind you, there's a Joker card on your wall, a playing card. Phil turned around. The card was gone. He stood up, keeping the headset on, moving to the side to display the now blank wall. There's no card on my... Phil paused immediately as he heard through the speakers what I heard in my own living room. I looked up. My lampshade was moving with the strength of the bangs from upstairs. Phil, I'll, I'll have to go. ''I think something's fell over upstairs. I'll need to go and check.'' ''You go and check. I'll wait right here. I won't go anywhere,'' said Phil reassuringly. I took off my one earbud and slowly headed upstairs, and I do mean slowly. I was terrified. Rationality was just not part of my thought process. Taking a deep breath, I launched myself into the bedroom, and... nothing.'' Nothing out of place. I checked every other room upstairs, all as usual. Nothing out of place. Those two thumps were from downstairs. I raced into the living room, and again, nothing. I shook my head and sat back on the settee, placing the warm earbud in my "Margaret!" Phil’s face was pale, his eyes wide. Is someone in the house with you? I shook my head. No, why? He pointed down the camera. Your settee? It just lifted and dropped twice? My face must have shown my confusion. Did you see anyone doing it, Phil? Eyes wide, he shook his head. The way it lifted, it would have took two people, one either side. Are you sure there's no one in the house with you? Phil's reaction had me terrified. No, no, I, I mean, I feel like there is, but there's no one here. I've checked everywhere. Phil tried to calm himself. Phone the police now. I know what I've just seen. Someone must be there. I nodded, terrified enough that I just followed his instruction immediately. The police arrived and searched the entire house. I explained my occupation and the fact that Phil had witnessed the settee raise and drop. The police seemed as perplexed as me, and I am not surprised. I realised what I was saying sounded insane. Well, there's no one here, and we have checked everywhere, inside and out. But if you see someone, by all means give us a call back, said the officer. I saw them both to the front door, and was about to close the door when one of the officers bent down, picking something up from my doorstep. I take it this is yours? He smiled, holding out the playing card, the three of clubs. I genuinely felt a shiver run down my spine. I nodded and reached out, taking it from the officer. Once they left, I phoned Sheila, and I explained everything that happened. Within an hour... Sheila was at my door with a lady I'd never seen before. She was frowning before I even invited them in. Sheila introduced Brenda. Brenda, apparently, could deal with things like what I was experiencing. I passed her the playing card. The one the police had just passed me on the doorstep. She closed her eyes, rubbing the card. When she opened them, She stared straight through me and then said you've had something sent to you a being something intent on hurting people it's been sent to you by another person someone you know they've used you to free themselves from this do you know who it was? I slowly nodded I think so Brenda nodded Then the easiest thing to do is simply return it. Well, this made me feel uneasy. The whole situation made me uneasy. I don't believe in the paranormal. I don't. Despite all of this, I don't. Yet I was feeling bad about the idea of sending this alleged thing back to Sophia. I was in a total bind... "'Something was taking place. "'Even I had to acknowledge that. "'But belief-wise, if I don't believe in these things, "'there's technically nothing wrong in sending this imaginary thing "'back to Sophia, right?' "'How would we go about sending it back?' I asked. "'It's relatively simple. "'I'll bind what's here to this very card.' You simply place it in a blank envelope and post it through that person's door. Though it's imperative you wear gloves, especially after I've bound the card. The next physical touch of the card needs to be that individual. This was total madness. But I agreed. Brenda told Sheila and I to go on a 30-minute walk which we did in total silence. Upon our return, the card lay on the table. Brenda looked like she'd aged ten years in that half an hour. She pointed at the table, and out of breath, she said, ''Get gloves on. Get an envelope and put it in.'' Well, i done as I was told. The next day, sat outside Sophia's house in my car... I watched as she left home and she walked down the street towards the shopping centre. I very quickly ran up her path, posted the card and ran to my car, my heart pounding and I headed home. I know it's said often but the atmosphere in my house was very different. I know when I'm alone in this house and finally I was alone again. To this day, I avoid driving past Sophia's house. Yet, if asked today, I still say I don't believe in the paranormal. Because if I believed, I'd have to feel guilty about returning the card. But the paranormal doesn't exist. At least, that's what I need to believe. Regards, Margaret well, thank you so much, Margaret, for submitting such an interesting experience. I was going to say I'm surprised that you listened to the show, but then I realized you're not being totally honest when you declare your beliefs. And I understand that. I understand that 100%. Because with the paranormal, it's like a domino effect. If you believe in one thing, then you need to automatically believe in many others. And it's much easier, from a rational standpoint, to say it's all nonsense. But clearly, if you've been listening to the show, something is telling you it's not nonsense. I believe I said it even in season one. But there's a reason why we get those little alarm bells ringing when we're alone in some place, even in our own home. Because whether we want to admit it to ourselves or not... The paranormal is all around us, both light or, as we prefer to look at, dark. So once again, thank you, Margaret, for your experience. And I'll remind everyone we are accepting submissions for Season 14. Email contact at thedarkparanormal.com. We have a mini-sode out this week, and then on Friday, we have Episode 7 of Season 13, which will be an amazing listener experience. So until then, remember, when you're talking about the paranormal, always try and leave some of your disbelief at the door. And I'll see you next time, right here on The Dark Paranormal.